welcome to the next episode of Staying Muddy Podcast. Today we have Michael Koenig, who started as a fine dining restaurant manager for 10 years. And then he became a racing mechanic instructor for an exotic fleet of cars, which is pretty cool. Um, then he went to Western Washington University, um, where he was an FSAE and engineering student. Um, and he, after that, joined Motivo Engineering as a project as a project manager um, in 2018, and he's now receiving his MBA from the University of Kansas. Uh, he's also an SAE SoCal volunteer. Um, and fun fact, you said that your son does karting. Yep. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> keep it, keep it all racing in the family. <laughs> as it should be, as it yep. should be. Yep. So if you if you could, Michael, just kind of give us a little bit of a spiel of uh, sort of your your sort of your career path, maybe in a couple minutes yeah. or something. Yeah, absolutely, I can do that. Uh, so I guess first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I think it's really cool to do these kind of events with the different student groups. So I definitely great. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Um, so yeah, my background is kind of all over the place. So I'll try to keep it simple. Um, yeah, out of high school, I actually was initially going to go to college for aerospace engineering and decided to get a job instead. And I'm from the Napa Valley and the Bay Area in California, and so it made sense to go get a restaurant job, And um, which was always a great experience. Like, if you think failing at engineering is bad, try failing at a restaurant. I took, like, an entire tray of glasses on my first day in a restaurant and dropped them on the stairs literally just like rain glass over the entire customer base on like a Friday night. And I was like, oh, this is my first and last day. This is great. <laughs> and then I did it for the next 10 years. So clearly you're allowed to make the mistakes as long as you overcome them. Um, but yeah, so I got into restaurants, ended up managing and opening a couple restaurants throughout the Napa Valley um, as they came through. <laughs> and then kind of on the side, always been interested in cars. Um, transitioned away from the aerospace side and started to look at more the automotive side um, and more just playing with cars on the side. But then I decided to um, kind of go dabble in the actual mechanic side. So I did a program that at the time was called Jim Russell Racing at Sonoma Raceway, which at that point it was Sears Point Raceway. And the goal there was to spend a year doing that. And you basically treat it like school, you pay tuition and you go every day for eight to 12 to 16 hours, you know, it's a lot like doing SAE in that sense. Um, and you learn how to build the cars and work on the cars. And they were doing um, Formula Fords when I first went there. But we ended up buying a fleet of Formula 3 Lola chassis. And then um, also the company had bought a, basically a shipping container of Mitsubishi 4G63 turbocharged motors. Nice. And it was like, these two things are not meant to go together. So here, make them go together. And so I was with the class that kind of figured that out and started to build out that fleet that's here now. And so you can go there and you can pay to drive the cars and learn how to drive it. And so at the same time, um, we got to drive the cars and drive different race cars and Audi experience cars on track uh, throughout my year there. And I really fell in love with the driver instructor side of that. So I used to bug all the driver instructors like on the weekend to be like, hey, teach me this stuff and let me work in the cars. And, you know, I'd ask a lot of questions and you know, I would just sit up there while they were out in the hot sun and the pit boxes and working with uh, customers on their driving technique. And I just ask questions like, hey, how come you told them to do that? And I kind of push it to the point where somebody's like, you're being a little annoying. I'd be like, OK, I won't ask that question, um, but just trying to learn as much as I can. And so I moved to Southern California uh, when I left there and right in 2008, right as the 
um, economy kind of fell out at that point. And so really struggling to find a job in the automotive industry. So at that point, I just kind of do the desperation thing, just send resumes to everybody and found a company that was called world-class driving and they were a fleet of exotic cars and they went around the country doing driving experiences and i got in contact with them and they were kind of looking for somebody to do a little bit of instructor a little bit of mechanic work a little bit of logistics and like first phone call was the second week of january in like 2009 and the owner who's an old belgian race car driver was like we have a 200 mile per hour 200 mile per hour event in florida in three days can you be here in two days sure so kiss my wife goodbye hopped on a plane and headed out to florida and did that for the next five years kind of off and on uh working with that company as an instructor um doing different driving events mostly on the west coast and then doing the 200 mile per hour events as well um, that company ended up going to vegas permanently it's what is now speed vegas um, in las vegas as the driving experience and we were just getting ready to start our own family and didn't really want to start a family in Las Vegas. So we decided to, I was going to go back to school at the same time. So we, that's how we ended up in Washington. Uh, eventually went to a community college just to kind of get up to speed and kind of get my, my school legs back under me while working. Um, ended up at Western Washington um, while still working in restaurants full time. And so kind of doing the balance back and forth between working in restaurants and going to school full time. And then got involved in Formula SA up there. Um, if you know anything about Western Washington, they have what's called the VRI, the Vehicle Research Institute. And it was a really well-renowned uh, program for doing uh, automotive development. They've done a lot of programs with OEMs and a lot of development cars uh, throughout their life cycle. And so that kind of helped the Formula SAE team and the Baja team um, really have access to those resources. And I'd kind of fallen off for a couple of years when I first went up there. And so I kind of got lucky to fall into a team that was really ambitious about like bringing that back to like the golden child of what that department and what that school was. So we kind of tore the team down and built it up uh, from fresh and put a lot of processes in place and um, a lot of new protocols and how we we're going to really focus on like, let's figure out how to build a car in a single year that hadn't been done in three or four years. And then we'll start to iterate on how to make it better year after year. I think that team learned a lot from doing that. It was nice that I could kind of bring my experience in there. We got a really good advisor who had come from the racing background that kind of helped us along and kind of set the foundation for the team to keep building on uh, going forward. Um, so then I guess to my most recent career path, came out of college and actually Dean Case, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with in the SA SoCal region. Um, I invited him actually completely random up to uh, Western Washington to talk to the team. I saw some of the other conversations he had had with teams. I'm like, this is my chance for somebody with a bunch of experience to come in and motivate the team I was trying to motivate and how we're going to continue to grow it. And at the same time, saw that he worked with this company called Motivo Engineering, which I knew a little bit of on the side. They did a lot of prototype engineering, but not a ton. But I was like, hey, I need a job. I might as well ask him about it. And so I kind of talked to him about it while he was there and he took my resume and one thing led to another and I ended up at Motivo uh, in summer of 2018 and came in as a project manager and kind of worked my way up to being promoted to a product manager and heading up an entire engineering team uh, at the beginning of this year. And so that's what I do now on a day-to-day -day basis is handle that. Oh, so wow. I think that's the, that's the short but long version of my all over the place career path. Yeah, so the moral I mean, of that story that I always come back to is like, it doesn't matter how you get to where you are. There's 50 million different ways to get there and everybody has their unique path and everybody brings new experience in. And so just kind of working through that is critical. 
Yeah, and you definitely have probably one of the more interesting <laughs> career paths throughout. Um, I guess one of the biggest thing that sticks out to me is that, I mean, you were in the restaurant business for 10 years or so. Like, I think maybe at some point within those 10 years, you're like, yeah, this is what I'm going to be doing for, you know, maybe for the rest of my life or something. Maybe that might have crossed your mind. Like, at what point were you like, you know what, uh, instead of tinkering with these cars, I want to start working on them afterwards. Like, what, where, what motivated you to make that career change? So it was actually the opposite is I worked 10 years in the restaurant industry and every year it was like, ah, I'm really not enjoying this. This is going to be the year I get out. And then the paycheck comes and you're making such good money that it's like, okay, next year I'm going to save up. And then next year is the year I'm going to get out of the restaurant industry. And it just keeps going and going. And then it becomes like, oh, there's this cool project. We can open up a new restaurant. Let's do that for a year. And so actually that's how I got out was I totally fall in love with working on cars. I wanted to keep doing that. I wanted to go back to school. And somebody I'd worked with previously really closely had decided he wanted to do his own restaurant. And so I was like, okay, this is where I can draw a line in the sand. I'm going to help you open your restaurant. I'm going to give you a year and a half. I'm going to train my replacement almost from day one, and I'm going to get out. And that's how we did it is we kind of set it up that way for like, we know what the goal is. Now we work towards that. And that's how I got out. So for anybody who's kind of maybe thinking the same thing or they're early on in their kind of their, their educational career, um, what do you think that you could have told your younger self where you're making this really big change in your life and, you know, just going for it? What would, what do you, what would you tell your past self to kind of get you through that hurdle? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I could kind of look back is realize like you can get knowledge out of anything. I think so often like going to get an engineering degree and you're like, I have to get the best engineering job I can. I have to end up at SpaceX or Tesla or something like that. And yeah, that's a good a ambition to have an aspiration to have, but it like it doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody gets to work at places like that. But realizing that like no matter where you go, get the most out of it. I use my restaurant experience on a daily basis as a engineering project manager. And that sounds weird, but the two actually have a lot in common. And one of the values I have as a project manager coming in is like, I don't look at everything as an engineer. I get to look at it from the real world. You know, one of the big things that Motiva were about is CX. It's that client experience. And that's what restaurants are all about, right? Is like giving that best experience, especially high end restaurants. So I really get to drive that home with that. And so, yeah, looking back, it would be like, don't get frustrated. Keep looking forward. Even if you're doing a job that's not your favorite job, do two things. Don't get locked into it. Always look for what your next step is, but understand what you are in the present. There's so much you can learn from it. Don't miss those opportunities. You know, every job, even the worst jobs out there can still add value to your future better job. And you bring more value then. If you bring experience that another business hasn't seen before, you're just that much more valuable coming in because you're giving a new perspective and kind of pushing for change. <laughs> I mean, you definitely sort of crossed a little bit into our, into our next question where it's pretty much like, how do you think being involved in the restaurant industry helped you in the FSA? You know, we've, we talked about this a little bit earlier before, um, before the meeting, how Dean Case is always mentioning that one right, right. guy that's like, that he was in the restaurant business and one of the best engineers comes out from being part of the restaurant business for a couple of years. So how do you think that being involved in the restaurant business helped you throughout FSA? Yeah, I think it's one of those, like, if you work in a fast-paced, high-end restaurant, it's like, it's, you're kind of rolling up to it, and then everything comes at once, and everybody has to work together as a team just to get to the other side. 
And in a good restaurant, it's you have to multitask. You have to be able to take care of multiple tables. You have to anticipate the issues that are going to come up. You know, you make the most money is if you can address the issues before anybody realizes they're an issue. And that's the same thing for engineering, right? You can make mistakes in engineering, but if you can catch them before they become actual parts, like your parts always come out perfect. And it doesn't matter how many iterations you had to do in the design, your parts are always going to come out perfect because you're looking ahead to what it needs to be. But a lot of times, I mean, managing fine dining restaurants, you'll look at it on a Friday night and you can have, for instance, a party of 20, just walk in randomly at 7.30, which in most people's mind is like the worst thing in the world. You know, that's like machining your uprights and halfway through the ops, you just plunge right into it. And you got to start <laughs> over. That's basically the same thing yeah. as a correlation. But what you do is you take a step back, you look at your resources. Okay, I have these three servers. I have this fusser. The kitchen's this busy. Here's the tables I have available. What can I do with what I have? And then you just make it work. And so especially doing SAE on Baja and Formula, like so often the teams are handed constrained resources. They don't have enough people. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. But the successful teams can take a step back from that, look at it and be like, this is what I have. This is what I'm dealt. What can I do with it? And then they move on from there and really excel. And that's the difference between a great restaurant and a not so great restaurant is a party of 20 walks in and you can either shut down the restaurant and everything can just fall apart or you can just handle it. And it may be stressful in the background, but as long as everybody keeps having a good time and gets the meals they were expecting and walks away happy, that's a win overall. And that's how it is, you know, on SAE is as long as you can get to comp, like that's what's important. <laughs> you get a completed car to comp. It may yeah. not be the car you thought you were going to build last July, but it's a car you got to comp and you guys did it together. And that's what matters. <laughs> Sounds like something a bunch of these SAE kids do is we take our big groups of 20 to the restaurant. Well, it sounds a little arrogant, but I made sure to work in restaurants where that would be less of a concern, but, but yeah, it's, you know, it's having that understanding and that, those large groups going in there and, you know, how often you can just show up to a restaurant. It seems like everything's working out. What you don't know is the complete and utter chaos that's happening in the background when you just show up to a restaurant. <laughs> oh man. So what you're saying is that engineering students should uh, take up um, uh, a, a little bit of a restaurant job. <laughs> I, I always tell people that you want to, you want to see how it is to like work fast and work hard and be limited on what you are, but then you get, you get paid directly for the work you put in, go work in a restaurant. Like a restaurant is a perfect example of the work you put in is the money you get out. You get paid for maximizing your resources. You get paid for giving the best experience. You get paid for working the hardest. There's not many jobs out there in the world where you automatically get paid more on a daily basis because you're better and you work harder than everyone else, except restaurants. <laughs> well, so now that we, we kind of talked about how the restaurant helped you to FSA and then pretty much your next stepping stone from FSA to you know being a, a project manager at Motivo. Mm -hmm. How did that benefit you going into Motivo from FSA? Like obviously going to being a part of SAA, FSA, you know, you go through the entire design, um, go through the entire design cycle and stuff like that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the unique thing I got with uh, doing SAE was like I said, is going to a team that wasn't necessarily fully established. We had the best resources in the world, literally the best resources you could have in a school. We had machine shop, we have in-ground chassis dynos, we have an engine dyno room, we have banks of CNC's, like we had all these resources and we weren't able to build a car in a single year. 
And so what I kind of came in there with this group of people was looking at it, not so much on how are we going to build a car? It was, how are we going to build a team? And that's the part I really fell in love with. It's like, I mean, I'm sure you guys have all watched the Claude videos, but it's about building, you know, a C car with an A team. And that's what you should yeah. be focusing on. So going to Motivo, where we do so much prototype and so much development and so much like people come to us where we know this is a problem and nobody in the world knows how to solve it. We need you to solve it. Like that's what challenges you. And that's where you get good as a manager of like looking at what those constraints are, looking at what you have, what the knowns and unknowns are, and then just working forward to find it. And I think one of the most humbling things was going there. I mean, I went and did SAE as a 32 year old full blown adult, like after two careers and working with a group of, you know, 20 to 24 year olds who didn't have a ton of life experience, like super ambitious and smartest people I've ever worked with. But like, I always say, Formula SAE students have never heard no before. Like you just started doing your own laundry. You definitely haven't heard a hard no before. <laughs> and so learning how to adjust when you hear no is a big thing. And so being able to teach a group of students that and work with them through it and lead them through it, I think taught me a lot to be able to go to Motivo and be able to take on those challenges. It's, it's definitely satisfying once you get, once you get to competition and once it's over, it's <laughs> yep. such a huge relief and uh, it's one of the best feelings for sure. Yep. Yep. So speaking of, of competition, what do you think was the thing specifically that Dean noticed? Um, like when he noticed that your kind of project management skills were influencing really in like in a positive way, uh, your, your FSAE experience, like what made him say this, I got to hire this guy. And like at competition, he's excelling. Was it your sales presentation? Was it your design presentation? Was it just like your team management? What like what was the moment that Dean said, I gotta hire this kid? <laughs> sure. So actually Dean, I had been hired at Motivo before we went to competition. Oh. So like when I saw Dean at competition, like we were already technically coworkers. Dean actually pulled me out when I had him come up and talk to the team. And he's always said like that was one of the big things for him is like that I had the foresight to have somebody with experience come up and talk to this team that needed a little bit of guidance. And then I'd kind of talked him through the process of him coming out of like where we came from. And we came from like, we had half a chassis built for two years and couldn't get it knocked out to we're going to take this car to comp this year. And I have an entire team of 25 people who had never been to comp before. And we were starting to put that system in place on what that means. And I'd never gone to comp before. Like I had a ton of old man experience, but I didn't have like, I'd never gone to SA comp before to give that insight. And so I think what really resonated with him was how I managed that entire situation. And we started the year with a huge unknown. Like we don't know how to do this. We know what our goal is. We have no idea how to get there and we need to just work it out as we go. I think having that mentality um, is kind of what stood out to him um, because that mentality totally fits in at Motivo. So like when, when you got into exotic racing, like mm -hmm. what, was, what was that experience like? Tell us that. Everybody wants to see the fast, cool, expensive <laughs> cars, but like what was really going on behind the scenes of what you were doing there? Ugh. Um, it, it's a lot like working in restaurants, like a lot of chaos in the background to give the best experience. It was interesting because we were traveling around with, you know, two and a half million dollars worth of cars and a trailer, just traveling around the country. And we'd show up somewhere and people would have paid quite a bit of money to come drive them. And we cycle them through the cars as the day goes on. And we do these beautiful roads and, you know, give people the best experience. But 
I mean, think about what you guys would do if I handed you a Lamborghini and was like, go, like, you're going to go, right? And so it's like playing this balance of we want to give people the most fun and the most experience possible. We also need our cars to make it to the next event. We need them not to break and not to crash. And, you know, we were looking out for our customers, like our insurance deductible is $25,000 if you got into a fender bender. So it's like teaching them the process of like, don't do this. Don't hit that curve because here's what that check is going to look like but not minimizing what the experience was. And so a lot of background logistics is uh, what I really enjoyed there is like getting to locations and finding the right locations and the best roads. And we get to a certain area, like we did an event in um, north of Seattle one time, which is actually where I fell in love with going up to Washington before I moved up there. But it's like we had to spend the two days before like scouting the perfect roads and finding the right fuel stops and putting this all together. So it was just like a 24 hour burn of going into this unknown area. And this is back before we had Google Maps and everything even. So it wasn't like, oh, just open up the website. We'll find a squiggly line on the map and we'll go drive on that. Like you had to kind of find the right routes and then go drive them and make sure they were adequate, make sure there wasn't a bunch of potholes. And then on the day of the events, like getting these really nervous full-blown adults into these cars. Like they've never driven anything this expensive. And a lot of people like this was a, an anniversary present or retirement present. And so they really wanted to get the most out of it. It was probably the only time they're gonna get to do it. And so appreciating that and be able to give them the best opportunity, the best experience as possible um, was really cool. And then getting to work with people who you know, usually the people that didn't weren't coming from driving like race cars and Ferraris and Lamborghinis to come drive Ferraris and Lamborghinis. It was usually like, oh, I drive a Porsche Cayman and I'd like to drive a Ferrari or yeah, I watch racing on TV. So I think I've got this. And so you get this wide spectrum of everything from somebody who gets in that's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I can use all the help I get all the way to you know, the little old lady who's super timid and all of a sudden she's hitting corners twice as fast as everybody else because she just listens all the way up to, I mean, in all honesty, the totally egotistical guys that are like, I got this, I got this. And then they stall the car every single time they try to launch. And so figuring out the advice to give people on that full spectrum on a day-to-day -day basis was always interesting. So aside from just like getting to drive the cars all the time and being involved in that, like that was the cool stuff happening in the background that was uh, really interesting and you learned a lot from. What was the, uh, what was the training like as like, say the person shows up at the event and they're ready to get into the car. Like, is there um, like a breakdown at the beginning where you sit them down and like, Hey, this is the car that you're going to be driving. This is yep. sort of like, this is going to be running. How does that, that whole experience? Yeah, it's very minimal um, for our on-track events. It was very detailed. Like when we did our high-speed events or our 200 mile per hour events, we're renting out an entire airport, like in Mojave, and we're le we're working up to it. We're obviously not like here's the keys. Let us know when you hit 203 and come on back. Mm -hmm. Like we're working up towards that and having a lot of like professional instructors and their full fire suits and everything working with them. But for the on-street events, it was. It was always interesting because we want to give that training. We walk them through the cars, but you don't really have the time because it's like a four-hour event. Like we can't spend two hours going through all the details. So we kind of have to be on our toes to gauge like, okay, this person needs extra attention. Okay, this person actually seems to know what they're doing so we can spend a little less time with them. And then it's getting in the cars with them. And we're usually sitting in the right seat while they're in the driver's seat and kind of walking them through 
like, okay, this is what you need to do with the car. Here's where your shift points are. You know, we've scouted out this track, like, hey, there's going to be a stop sign coming up that you're not going to be able to see, kind of get ready for that. Um, okay, here's an open piece of road. We could probably get up to this speed. So it's doing a little bit of that initial training and planting the seeds and then being super dynamic as the day goes on on like who needs those touch points and who doesn't. Right, okay. I mean, that definitely, I'm sure it came in handy once you started work, once you started being a part of FSAE and, and having to train a lot of these drivers. I'm sure some of these drivers, you know, they, they go to K1 and they think they have the best time, but you put them in, in the formula car and they're just like, I'm not sure yeah. what to do. So that, the, do you have any tips for like SAE teams? Because you obviously have experience within a, being a driving instructor with incredibly fast cars. So do you have any tips for them as they're doing like driver training and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things I've always worked with SAE teams on for driver instruction, and clearly that's what I did when I was up at Western also, so we went through a lot of it. But it's two things, it's collect data and learn how to read it. Like that's so huge as an engineer that wants to be a better driver. And it's not just about, I wanna be a better driver and I wanna go as fast as possible. But if you're not collecting data on some level and then making engineering decisions and tuning decisions towards that, you're really just working in the dark. And I think a lot of students get stuck in this trap of, oh, I have done K1 or, you know, I, I drive a Miata and <laughs> I've done two autocrosses and it's like, okay, so I can give the suspension team the feedback they need to make dampen adjustments. And it's like, no, you can't, like, you just don't have that feel. And so one of the things I try to work with people is like the way you get that feel is collect data and then correlate your butt dyno to what the data says. And then the data collected on formula cars or on Baja doesn't have to be this huge data collection system where you have all the squiggly lines in the world and you learn how to read them. Like if you're just tracking, you know, throttle input and brake pressures, like you can correlate that to what you're doing. Um, Cause a lot of times you can take that information simply and then you do a breakdown with the driver afterwards and like, Hey, where do you think you were at full throttle? Okay, coming out of turns three, five, and nine, I felt like I was at full throttle. And then you pull up the data and it's like, actually, you never went above 75%, which tells me there's 25% in the full throttle in those places where you can still get to. Or you start to look at brake pressures. Okay, where were you hitting the brakes? Okay, I was hitting it 50 yards away from where the turn in for the corner was. And you can see the spike in the brake pressure data. Okay, I want you to try to do it at 45 yards this time and see if you can walk it in. And you start to see where the brake pressure spikes increase. And it's like, okay, perfect. You're hitting the brakes harder now, which means you can go later. And then you start to see, I blew through that corner on one of them. Okay, let's look at the brake pressures. Okay, you maxed out the brake pressures. You were on hard as you could. We need to back it off a little bit. And learning how to read that information and adjust the car accordingly, I think is so important as an engineer who's also going to be a driver. But also understanding when you drive, especially these open wheel cars or the Baja cars too, because they're so soft, they're set up so soft, like everything the driver does changes the car dynamically. And it amazes me and I take it for granted on my experience on how many people don't get that. If you hit the brakes, you're not just slowing the car down. You're doing weight transfer to the front, which offloads your rear suspension, which decreases your traction on your tires, which changes your acumenic. Like there's all these little things. If you're on the brakes and then gently coming off and then you turn left, like where does your weight transfer go? How can you set up, you know, 
look at your track. How many, do you have more turns left than right? Like are your suspension set up to take more left turns than right turns overall? So starting to dig into that a little bit as a driver is super, super important. And I really think like we talk about the driver mod all the time. You can spend all year trying to figure out suspension as a college student. It doesn't matter because those drivers can't use any of that perfection. Right. You know, you can add 50 horsepower out of your, you know, motorcycle engine. If the driver can't utilize 50 horsepower, it doesn't do you any good. And so if you actually want to go faster, you have to max out the driver ability first, and then you start tuning in the car once they exceed that. Yeah. So I think, I don't know if that answered your question or not. I totally yeah. go on a driver instruction tangent. So we're probably going to have to bring me back a couple times throughout this. It, it definitely makes sense. It's like probably one of the biggest turnoffs, I think, in, at least in my experience within Baja, um, was not was like not having access to like a large like telemetry system and being discouraged because you aren't able to see, you know, the fancy lines and stuff like that. Yep. But be, like you said, being able to track throttle um, and, and brake pressure as well. Um, I think at least as far as driving, that's probably one of the biggest reasons a lot of people join FSAE or join Baja is because they want to drive. That's more than likely not the reason why they stay. That's the reason why they join. That's not the reason yep. they stay. Um, and now, especially in, 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 you know, during the whole COVID and pandemic thing, you can't be around your cars, you can't be around your, your, um, your team members or anything. So we've, and it, we've essentially just lost that entire section of driving instruction of being able to be behind the wheel. Do you have any sort of uh, maybe like words of encouragement or, or tips for teams during COVID to maybe get them riled up? Cause it's always nice to see these cars running. Like what, what do you think now during COVID could get the, get the teams going? Build a simulator. Like every single person asks me that question, build a simulator. You're not spending money on making a car this year, build the best damn simulator you can. Like, if you have an issue using your team funds for doing it, like you have to find a way to justify it. And you do it in a way, do it as a full ergo rig. Like if you actually do your ergo rig as your driving simulator, it now serves two purposes. Spend the money to get a good wheel set up from Fanatec, get, spend the money to get the right pedals. If you're really crafty, you can retrofit the pedals from your Formula SAE car to the Fanatec setup. Like there's so many things you can still do. And then I always tell people make it mobile because now what you've done is you've put that simulator set up in one person's dorm room or one person's apartment. Like if you make it mobile to where it can break down and then every week rotate it, you know? And if you use programs like Assetto Corsa or iRacing, you can track the data. You can learn how to read data acquisition from a race car using video games. It's the most ridiculous thing that people don't do it all the time. Yeah. And it's such an easy thing to do. And I think people look at some of those like professional setups and it's like 10 and $20,000. You can build it for $1,500 and it can last you the next eight years. Like spend the money to do it right. Um, you know, start with two by four and plywood and then just build it up from there and eventually make it out of 80, 20, or, you know, or somebody take as a senior project, actually machine good, you know, a good frame and everything out of it. But the key things is like, make it match your car. There's no reason for it not to. If you're a Baja team, set it up so you're sitting in like a Baja car and then go get any of, you know, like dirt. Dirt is actually a great game for simulator. And the physics are so good nowadays that you can get most of the way there. But don't treat it like a video game. Like I always default to a set of Corsa. It's what I know. But like use a set of Corsa, pick a track, get your times, stop, look at the data. 
where are your throttle inputs, where are your brake inputs, where are your turning angles, where you can go faster. You can do an ideal lap through there where it takes all your best corner speeds and matches them all together and then try to hit that lap and then turn it into a competition. Like put the next driver in the, in the setup. Okay, here's the track I was on, here's the car, here's the conditions, go try to beat my time. And then compare data to data, like one driver, okay, I'm able to get full throttle coming out of turn three, a yeah. hundred feet sooner than you are. Let's talk about why. Okay, your setup coming into it is off the line on here. And then try, turn it into an engineering project. Like video games as an engineering project is a thing with how good driving simulators are nowadays. And they are, they're so cheap. You can build a good Fanatec setup for under $1,500. Like I said, it's not like you have to buy a new one next year. Like you can just keep using it. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's pretty much a standard with an F1. You know, they do. Yeah, oh, absolutely. They all have yeah. one in their trailer and everything. It's like, oh, it's raining outside. I'm going to go put down 100 laps right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to add, so do you guys actually think that a lot of video games that exist, like, that you could buy, like, on Steam or something right now, like, are they actually pretty accurate in terms of, like, simulation? Yeah, so if, you, if you do the big ones, if you look at... For your, for your video game. <laughs> No, if you look at a set of Corsa iRacing, like that's what, I mean, these NASCAR drivers that are getting paid $20 million a year are all on iRacing. Like the physics are so good. And if you understand what the physics actually are, you can get the most out of it. And I guarantee you can go, you can become a better driver as an inexperienced driver in the simulators than you can by just putting an open wheel car on track because it's too high risk. If you push the limits and shoot and totally blow through a corner and put it into the fence, you've completely ruined your car for your entire team. Well, you do that on a set of courses and you, you, you just hit reset and then you go again. So as long as, like I said, is you can get the most out of it as long as you go into it with a purpose, like use it for driver training. We are going to use this video game to get better at our jobs. Don't use it just to be like, oh, well, I want to go fast at Laguna Seca. Like, don't even go on Laguna Seca. Like, do it for fun in your spare time, but treat it like a class. Like, for the next two hours, I'm going to run the same track that's as flat as possible because that's what the type of track we run at Comp. I'm going to do a Formula Ford in there. I'm going to take down the traction on the tires because the slicks you guys use are nowhere near what the slicks they use on that setup and just start dialing it. And you want to get your suspension guy really bought into it, tell him to start playing with the suspension parameters in one of the simulators and make adjustments and treat it just like a test day. Make one adjustment, run 10 laps. Did it make you faster or slower? Made you faster, make another adjustment, do 10 laps. And like I said, if you treat it like a project, if you treat it like an engineer, yeah, you can, you can get 90% of the way there and then you're ready for seat time. So one of the things that I kind of see happening in the future is that, you know, follow up to the whole COVID stuff and, and what you said about how kind of like it doesn't make sense to build a car with better engineering specs if your driver, you know, can't keep up with the improvements that you make. So would you say, you know, considering that probably people are going to go back to their labs uh, in a longer time rather than a shorter time, they might have had like new people cycle in um, and weren't able to pass on as much manufacturing information as possible because you know students are graduating without physically being in the space would you say like that it is better to work on the simulation and have like 
and and just like build a car and get a car that you can practice driving on versus kind of like engineering it to be like top spec yeah so i'm i'm laughing as you asked the question because i knew what you were trying to ask and then like the western washington team i'm sure is going to see this and they're totally going to razz me because i kind of became known as like the anti-aero guy like i hate aero in formula <laughs> sa i think it's a waste and <laughs> i will i will die on this hill even though I'm all about the design challenge of it and the engineering challenge. And I think it's amazing that we have college students that are going through the simulation, the CFD, to do aero. And Western did an amazing aero car two years ago. Like, beautiful. And it works so well, and they did so much testing. But I have to kind of come in as the crotchy old man all the time and be like, yeah, but think what you could have done with that time and what you could have done with that money. And so that kind of goes to what your question is. is I, in an ideal SA world, I would love for COVID to go away, everybody go back to their shop, and everyone makes a tube chassis. Everyone just sticks whatever motor they have on hand in it. No one changes their suspension, and everybody just gets a car on track and starts driving. Because you're probably, you're right, you're probably going to see all these teams two years from now who have never actually touched a CNC machine, have never milled critical parts, have never had to go through a carbon fiber layout. Like, they're going to have to learn that. But if you can learn that without sacrificing going to comp one year, you get that experience twice. If you can build the quickest, dirtiest car you can to get the experience of learning how to drive, learning how to get driver feedback, learning how to make mistakes on the car, have things break, learn how to fix them, and then get to comp, at the same time as learning how to do the high-profile, cool stuff that's going to look great on a, pro on a portfolio, like that's going to be so important. It's not going to happen. Everyone's going to go back to their monocoques. Everybody's going to go back to their turbocharged single cylinders. Everybody's going to go back to their overwinged aerodynamic heavy design. Cool. Because everybody wants to do the cool project. And I'm all for that. But I still think we're going to miss. Like, I think if hypothetically comp is, let's say, two years from now where everybody can get back to it, I think half the teams aren't going to make it to comp. I think they're going to be, they're going to spend two years thinking about it. Like, look at all these cool things I could do. And while they were thinking, they weren't doing CAD. They weren't learning vehicle dynamics because they didn't have a car to play with. And so they weren't thinking about it. Um, I don't think a bunch of teams are going to pull their old cars out and finish them so they can just start driving. I think they're going to see that was, that was the old team's car. I don't want any part of that. I want to do my own thing. It's completely valid. But thinking about, it almost goes back to, like, if it's not the best job, still get the most out of it. Everybody's handed a horrible situation right now when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to everything, but specifically talking about this, when it comes to doing the SAE competitions, but everyone's screwed the same right now. Like no one's unique. And yes, some schools are getting access to their shops and some schools aren't. And, you know, some schools will finish a car this year and some schools will never go back in their shops. But when you get back there and you get back in what this project is, like taking a look out of how can we get the most out of right now with what we have. And I tell you what, taking a team that's never built a car before and having them do a monocoque that's fully aeroed and adding a turbocharge they've never done before, it's just not going to work. Like you don't have that lessons learned to be able to get there. You're not iterating on anything, you know, unless you can keep up that build. I would love to see teams right now do an entire design cycle and then just walk away from it. You know, the teams that know they're not going to get back in the shop, I think they're struggling to still do CAD. Why not? Why not still design an entire car 
knowing that you're never going to build it. Like the, the goal of doing SAE is not to build a race car. The goal of SAE is to better yourself as a student, as a person, as an engineer, as a business person, to add more value to the company that's going to hire you. That has nothing to do with building a race car. And so I'm afraid that a lot of teams have focused really hard on, I want to build a race car and I can no longer build a race car. Therefore, this doesn't have a purpose for me. And I'm really encouraging a lot of the teams to walk away from that mindset and focus on what's the situation? What are your constraints? What can you get out of this right now to kind of maximize it? Because I've always wanted to see teams set up to where I would love for competition to be set up to where you don't know what you're going to build that year. You know, I would love for SAE to just randomly pull something out of the hat and it's going to be a race car one year. It's going to be a Baja another year. It's going to be an airplane one year. It's going to be a canoe. It could be a building. It doesn't matter, right? What you actually build isn't the point. It's building the team that can then take on that challenge, I think is the more important part of all of this. But we all want to go fast. We all focus on how do I get muddy and how do I get on track? Yeah, that's definitely, um, there was like big lack of motivation because of that reason. Exactly what you said. It's just, you can't build an actual car, then the competition's pretty much over. And I, I think you put it, you put it perfectly. Um, to sort of jump back into sort of your, your own personal experience as a, as a race mechanic, um, I think, well, going into like FSAE, I think a lot of people go into it thinking that they need to learn. They need to know how to work on cars. They need to know how to put an engine together, put on some tires, things like that. So um, how has being a race mechanic and having that hands-on experience benefit, been beneficial for you going through your career and FSAE as well? I think it was beneficial for me because I could speak the language from day one. And I kind of, with my experience, I could... I could step into any subsystem and have those conversations and kind of challenge the team. I think it was really helpful as a project manager doing Formula SA because now I can kind of challenge things like, are you sure that's supposed to go there? And are you sure that's the right decision? And, you know, this thing you're saying is an issue. Is it really an issue? Um, but to let you in on a little secret, I hate working on cars. I <laughs> absolutely hate working on cars. It's it's messy. It's I'm not that person. Like I am not going to tear an engine apart to put it back together. What I love is the concept of it and the process of it. And that's why I erred to being a driving instructor. Like I went to be a race mechanic because that was the quickest path to get me to a car. It was the same mentality, right? How do I get seat time? Okay. Yeah. If I go work on the car, I can wiggle my way into having seat time. Um, but I don't love race cars because I want to work on them or I want to build them. Um, I like race cars because it's the system and you fit directly into the system. You know, everything I do in a car has a direct translation and effect to something else on the car. And then everything the car does has a direct translation effect on me. That's the part that I love. Um, so the race mechanic part, I actually don't, for me, didn't add a ton of value other than just experience. Like, yes, having that experience and the confidence. And I think it helped if we were trying to rebuild a Formula SA team almost from scratch, like I didn't have to learn how to build a race car. I'd already done that numerous times. And so I got to focus on other things. I got to focus on how do we build up the team? How do we build up the business team? How do we go raise money? How do I work with the school to get us what we need? I got to focus on that because I already had it. And then I let the other students on the team that didn't have the experience focus on how do I learn to build a race car? How do I learn suspension tuning? How do I learn manufacturing? You know, one of the 
one of the big fights we had was um, we felt like we were super delayed putting our two chassis together. And like, I had the most amazing welder, you know, young kid, but just could lay down beads like nothing. But he was hesitant to go out there and just start putting the chassis together because we wanted it to be perfect. We wanted everything to size up perfectly. We just didn't have that experience. And it kind of went back to like, the team as a whole didn't know how to overcome failure. And so they were afraid to fail and get it wrong because we won't be able to recover. Right. And I was like, just go out there and start tacking it up. And like, it didn't make sense. And I literally threatened to walk out in the shop myself and just start tacking it up. And it was like, oh, okay, 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 okay. No, let's start to go out there and just do it. Like, don't let Michael in the shop. Let's start to do it. And it was like, be able to have that empty threat of like, don't make me go in there and do it. Like, that's not what this is supposed to be. But I think having the confidence to be able to do that, because I would have just walked out there and started laying down beads, like no problem. Like if this is going to show you guys, this is what needs to be done. Um, I think that helped. And having that confidence of I can go do this and I could touch it in on any system and be able to do it. And then it became that little underlying joke of like, oh, Michael's in the shop. Like he shouldn't be. And so I kind of played it up a little bit of like, oh, I don't really know how to do this, even though like I did, but that didn't matter because I wasn't, I wasn't going to be that like very obvious safety net there of I can work on this or I can, you know, machine this out or I could run this on the CNC. And I think it really challenged the team to step into that. And then we ended up like what that team could do in the shop was just unbelievable. And some of the best products they put out was because they challenged themselves to be uncomfortable and really do it. And I think it was one of those, like, if the old guy's going to go out there and do it, then I guess I have to go out there and do it type of thing. <laughs> I'm glad you were able to uh, to see that, to be like, hey, you know, I'm I really good at doing X, Y, and Z, but, you know, the point isn't for me to do it. The point is for others right. to learn and sort of build a team on its own, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to see that. Um, so sort of to, to jump onto, like, your own personal level, um, you dealt with a lot of exotic cars, Ferraris, Lamborghinis. Do you have a favorite? Do you have that one car that, that it's like, hey, it's your turn to to instruct this guy on this on this Ferrari? You're like, oh, but thank God, it's, it's a good day. It's a good Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, there's always. It sounds so. I always sound so spoiled talking about this, and it's like there's cars out there like the counter. There's cars that people like swoon over, and I'm like, that car drives like crap. You don't want to be in there. Trust me. Like it's really funny, and then you're like, oh wait, hold on. I'm talking about a five hundred thousand dollar McLaren here that anybody would give up anything to be able to drive, and I'm like, you don't. No. You don't want that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, we had. But my favorite car, we had a 2008 Lamborghini Gallardo, but the Superleggera edition. So it was like all the weight was stripped out of it. It was straight piped. It was super raw. Suspension was extra stiff and it was tangerine orange. And so it was loud and obnoxious and uncomfortable. And I'd do 200 miles in that thing, no problem, and just be happy as can be. And it was great because you take it on like the back roads. Like I can remember one day specifically of like taking on the back roads above um, on Holland Drive, which is, you know, up yeah. in the LA area. You guys are familiar with it. Um, and working with somebody one-on-one -on -one there and just bombing through Mulholland Drive on this thing. And then we got back and, you know, he went on his way. And then, like, we had to go down and get something. And it's like, we had to cruise down Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills to go uh -huh. to this shop to get this part. Yeah. And so now I'm gone from, like, using the car for what it's actually best at up in the hills to what everyone else uses a Lamborghini for. Windows down hitting 5,000 RPMs whenever I can, being a loud, obnoxious, my bright orange Lamborghini cruising down Rodeo Drive. And it was just like, those were like the best days where you could do it. 
but then there's like one time we our truck actually broke down in like the middle of nowhere eastern oregon and the part for the truck for the the mechanic that was going to be able to fix it um he couldn't get the part this must have been like on a friday night or something he couldn't get it until monday afternoon to have it overnighted we had an event in vegas like monday afternoon mm -hmm. and we're still like 300 400 miles away we're like no we gotta get the truck fixed and he's like well the parts department in portland is open tomorrow that's who's going to ship it out but it's like it's saturday they'll ship it sunday it's here i'll have it monday morning and i was like well what if we go pick up the part like we'll, we'll, we'll go get the part we'll be your delivery service he's like if you have the part here tomorrow i'll fix it tomorrow you have on the road so what do what do you do it's 10 o'clock at night, you pull the Audi R8 out of the back of the trailer <laughs> and your other instructor sleeps in the passenger seat as you um, allegedly bomb across the middle of nowhere, Oregon at 120 miles per hour in the cloak of darkness. And you show up at this shop at eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday in Portland, Oregon, you pick up the part and you hop back in the car and you bomb back out there and you have it there Saturday afternoon back on the road. And it was just one of those things, like you're halfway through it and you're just like, wait, this is a thing like we're doing this right now like we shouldn't be allowed to do this but it was a really cool experience and you know getting to like be that much of a car person that passionate about them and then not only are you getting paid to do it which is awesome you're yeah. getting to see like i get to be passionate about those cars and i get access to them 24 7. And now I get to work with people who are passionate about these cars and this four hours is the only access they'll ever get in their lives to these cars. And it's really humbling. Um, and like not to always take it back to SAE, but I think that's something that students that do SAE could like learn from is think about the opportunity you're being given. That in hindsight, I talked to a lot of engineers who didn't do SAE and they're like, man, the one thing I regret about college is I wish I would have done that. It seemed like such a cool experience and it seemed like hard work, but I think in the throes of it, like we lose sight of that. All we know is like this part broke, somebody broke the suspension at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night and we have a test day tomorrow. Like that's all we see. And so yeah. it's hard to like take a step back and be like, wait, we're, we're talking about, we're getting to build a race car as a college student, like full time. And then you get to use that experience to go on and better your career. And when you jump into your first job and like, whether anybody wants to talk about it or not, when you make an extra $15,000 per year because you have SA experience yeah. and you can show that real world experience you have over someone else who just closed a textbook, took a test and then applied for the job, like that comes from something. And so being able to look back, going back to the exotics thing, it was really humbling to be able to look back and not take it for granted on. And I didn't get to do it full time. It wasn't like my nine to five. It was yeah. definitely like I do it for three months and then take three months off and still working in restaurants in the background. Uh, but you appreciate that time where you get to do that cool thing. And, you know, I think we've talked about it. It's like my son is so into cars and he does it all the time too. It's like, we'll watch Top Gear. And he's like, have you driven that one? Have you driven? How fast did you go in that one? And like, that's cool. Like I get to have that like with my kids and something he's passionate about. That's nice. Do you, do you guys watch any, any like, uh, like F1? Do you guys have like a favorite driver? Yep. Yep. We're very disappointed that Lewis Hamilton got COVID and won't be racing. He was devastated this morning. But yeah, we watch every F1 race. That's our that's our Sunday morning thing is he kicks mom out of bed and climbs up into bed and we turn the race on. And he's big on like, if he can get it, he'll get all through practice sessions, qualifying and the race. Mm, and, dedicated. Oh, it's, I can't flip channels. Like if there's some like obscure, like 
Miata spec race on yeah. some random channel. He's like, no, 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 stop there. We're going to watch this. But he's all about it. How, how, how old is your son? Uh, he's 10. And so did he, did he watch, well, he lost, um, you, you guys watched uh, Bahrain last weekend, last weekend? Yep. Yep. You guys watched the whole Grosjean thing go down? Yeah, it was funny. I knew it had happened beforehand. So I was able to be like, okay, he's good to watch this. Like there's nothing major that comes out of it. It's going to be a shock to him, but I can be like, he's okay. Well, mm -hmm. he had seen it turning the race on. Like he saw the preview for it um, on like the highlights. Oh yeah. So he knew, and so when it happened, he's like, "Don't worry, Dad. He's okay." And I was like, <laughs> oh, "Okay." I wasn't wasn't concerned. Uh, but yeah, and we had a good talk about it. Like, and it's hard as a dad that has a kid who races, like, to see something like that because now you're like, you directly jump to like your child in a race car going through yeah. something like that, and then you're like, I wonder how his parents feel watching that race. And so it was like you get a little emotional and stuff about it. So I'm very glad he was okay and like minimal minimal injuries which is amazing and it goes to the technology that's in formula one right now like and racing across the board like i don't know if you guys have watched any of like the old formula one uh documentaries about like race race car drivers were disposable like you built a car to go fast and if your race car driver died in an accident it's fine because you had another one ready to jump in yeah. and that's how the world was back then you know when ferrari was first starting out and maserati and everything and to see that technology now and, you know, everybody complain about the halo and how ugly it is. Oh, you will never hear somebody complain about that again. Though. Never again. Never Not once. Again. I, I love the halo ever since, ever since they started. I personally, I don't think it, it even messed with the design. No, but no, not at all. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, I think we have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, so what I did notice on your LinkedIn is you have a you're on your banner you have a fiesta i do i do that's my daily my fiesta <laughs> st a such a good that. car yeah such a good car such a good driver's car like the ultimate reasonable daily my job i feel like my sole job in life is to give get everyone to give up their cheap miatas to get cheap fiestas <laughs> like a fiesta is just a miata that you can actually put stuff in um it's so good it's it's one of the few cars I've ever driven that you didn't need to adjust anything. You know, I can, I mean, my commute is like 45 miles every day when I was going into work and it's just mm -hmm. the best, like even in LA traffic, a manual in LA traffic is still fun in that car. Um, yeah, I've done, I don't, I can't even think of the longest. I've done like 1200 miles at a time in that car. I once did a, a two day full trip from got off work in Seattle, drove to Salt Lake city for, a racing event, drove it on track for a day and a half, <laughs> dropped back in it to drive back to Seattle to go to work. Um, and it's just, it's the best. It's one of those, like, I'm not a sentimental person when it comes to yeah. cars. Like, I just want whatever's going to be the best to drive. And this is the one where I'll probably keep for a while because I can just keep driving it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, defi I'll definitely keep that in mind because I was thinking about maybe looking for a new a new daily so maybe you might it's, have told me on and they're so cheap they're so so cheap now you get one under forty thousand miles you get it right around 12 grand and i mean i've got one hundred thirty thousand miles on mine and just never an issue never a hiccup probably finally worn out the dampers and need to swap them but other than that and it doesn't my when i lived uh, north of seattle my daily drive was basically Mahalan drive equivalent but through the backwoods up to the restaurant i was working at and it was just 
it was 50 miles in both directions of nothing but twisty road, just up and down. And so like I was burning through tires, like <laughs> every 5,000 miles we're swapping out, you know, PSs, but it was the, just the best. And you get off work at 11 o'clock at night, nobody's on that road and you just go. And yeah, a good driver's car is everything. And I'm not big on like, I've already said, I hate working on cars. Like I'm not big on tuning cars. Like they're, they paid a lot of money to those engineers to get those cars right. So if you buy a driver's car, like just drive it, you know, it gets back to the whole, you can add a turbo to a car and add 150 horsepower. But if you never get to the driver experience and get yeah. good enough to actually use that, it's, you're just throwing money away. Go do a driving school. Like I'm all about the driver mod before anything else. Use your stock car and get the most out of it. But yeah, that picture on the on my banner on my LinkedIn, um, we actually rented out uh, a private road. It's called Mary Hill, and it's in uh, South Washington, and it's a well-paved private road. And they do a lot of uh, hill climbs there. They actually do like, I don't know what the acronym is, but it's like the downhill skateboard competition. Like the worldwide one is down this road, and it's nuts what some of these guys do. And we used to rent it out every year. Um, a ST group, so everybody with their Fiestas and um, oh, sweet. Focus, and we'd rent it for the whole day, and you just bomb up and down it, and I did a lot of instructing for that and everything, too. But yeah, so that's where that picture is, is that's just a private road, like just <laughs> coming in full tilt through a corner. That's cool. Appreciate you sharing that. I was going to say, so like, I, I know you, you've mentioned like stock is the way to go, like figure out how to do it, but do you, have you made any modifications on your car? No, I my car has an intake on it because it was cheap and it makes the right noises. And other yeah. than that, it's tires. Like <laughs> I just keep the best tires on it. And from there, that car doesn't need anything. There's not much that can keep up to it on a windy road if you know how to use it. Um, the suspension is actually set up really well. The seats are so you know well bol bolstered that it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm all about fast cars. Like clearly I spent a lot of time in some very fast cars, but I think getting the most out of a slow car you know, having a car that's set up perfectly to take 200 horsepower and then just getting that out of it is the best. And then it just becomes a driving experience. Then you can focus on, you don't have to worry about, you know, I'm doing 200 miles per hour into this corner and I'm going to crash it. Like you can get the most out of your corner speeds and everything. What about like a, a rally or like dirt car? Do you think it's good mostly just for like paved road or do you think it could be like a really great rally car too? Yeah, I think that might be something I transition it to. I think the Fiestas definitely make really good rally cars. Um, a lot of people use them. You know, when you see the big rally guys, they're all using Fiesta shells. And of course, that's not anywhere near what the, the stock setup is. But some of the more amateur ones, they use uh, a lot of Fiesta STs. Um, yeah, I would love on this one to almost do like a Safari style. If I could lift it, you know, a couple inches and put big old knobby tires on it and just hit fire roads all day long, like that would be the best for that. And then I get a little, another little hot hatch for my daily or something. But yeah, this car's got, you know, it's been in LA for a while, so it's got some, you know, dings in the door, and, you know, it's it's got some age on the uh, motor, but the interior, like, I'm the only one who's ever been in it, because I just drive it every day, so the interior is perfect, and the seats are great. And I think fresh suspension on it, and just using it as an autocross, and, you know, that kind of thing would be great. All right. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's all the questions that we had for today. Thanks okay. for giving us all these really crazy stories. But the <laughs> sure. last question that we have for you is like you've you've gone through all these motions of you know changing your career, 
like doing a full 360, having like some really cool experiences in the automotive industry and then also like as a student. Um, but what is like in store for you in the future? Oh, wow. Next. Um, well, I think you guys mentioned it. Like I'm in the middle of getting my MBA um, to add more to my plate. I definitely want to start airing more to the business side. Operations is something that really interests me. Like understanding how a business works as a total system. And, you know, I always call it like, I used to say I used to engineer restaurants and, you know, understanding what the flow of a restaurant is. I think starting to do that more on the business side for different companies is something I'm really interested in. It's one of my main reasons for getting my MBA is I have that engineering experience. I have that management experience. So I want to know, you know, how all the gears fit together on the business side and then kind of how I fit into that and how I can kind of build out the best team to kind of work through that. So I think that's what's in store for me in the future in the next few years is kind of moving into an operations position. Um, you know, probably be a little less hands-on on the engineering side, but I think be able to speak the language gives me the ability to stay in that industry and kind of add the most value to it. Well, we'll watch out for your son's name <laughs> in, the <laughs> in the big screens. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Don't tell him that because <laughs> his head gets big enough as it is in the car, but yeah, no, it's something we enjoy and we want to, we want to get back into fully. I don't think we've been able to do it much since being in LA. Um, so I definitely think we're going to start looking for that opportunity now as things start to open it back up. All right, sounds good. Yeah, so thank you again for telling us all your wonderful stories. Of course. They're a lot of fun. I often find like the people who have kind of like less traditional routes in school and in their lives and all those things have the craziest experiences. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that you want to share with us? Any like social media, any website, any um, anything that you work on that you want to share with the world? <laughs> No, I think, um, you know, we've referenced Motivo a couple times, you know, if anybody's kind of curious about that, you know, just checking out the website, uh, motivo.com. We're always hiring. So I think as everybody's starting to, you know, get through this year and look at graduation, and I think you're not going to see as many recruiting events. So I think a lot of students are going to kind of take it in their own hands to go out and find jobs. Um, and so reaching out through the website is kind of a good way. We have really cool projects. Um, we're always doing something different. You know, for instance, today was, you know, an electric robot tractor and an electric airplane and an autonomous vehicle and a parachute simulator. And that was like just today's projects. Um, so it's really cool place to work and you get that vast amount of experience. And that's where, like you were saying, is having different backgrounds coming in adds a ton of value because everything has a, everybody has a little bit of nugget of knowledge that nobody else has that really adds to it. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of one of the best things to check out. I think you also had a website. I don't know if you wanted to share that. Well. Uh, yeah, so I keep a website and maybe this is even just a piece of advice. I personally keep a website. I don't use it for anything other than, you know, when I do like talks like this or I give an essay presentation, I put the video up there for it. So it's a catch all. I keep my resume on there, my LinkedIn, my email. And that's a good way to be able to just tell people like, oh, hey, just go check out this website. And that's how you can get a hold of me. So mine is KoenigConcepts.com. Uh, and um, but that's something I would advise for anybody kind of going from college and getting into the job market is kind of build out that portfolio of what your experience is. It's hard to explain through a resume. And it's so I mean, you can get a website now. I think I pay like six dollars a year for mine and I only update it when something new comes up. 
Um, so having it up there and be able to put that on your resume to where when your resume gets passed around and then the person who doesn't have your resume anymore was like, oh, but wait, what was that experience they had? And then be able to just go to your website, I think is super valuable. Use it as like a digital resume to be able to talk about yourself. Well, I think that's uh, that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, we appreciate Perfect. you being here. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. Hopefully we can have you on again and you probably have a million and a half other things. <laughs> your experience. Oh. Yeah. Glad to, to take that in. Um, this has been the Staying Muddy Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next Thanks, time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Staying Muddy Podcast. I'm Mr. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok with the handle CalSlaveBahaSigi. You can also check out our website, CalSlaveBahaSigi, if you want to check out more stuff about our team. And we also have some merch on there as well. You can also join our Staying Muddy Podcast subreddit if you'd like. Thanks again for listening. See ya. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Staying Muddy podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Baja SAE in Cal State Los Angeles.